Written and read by Oliver Gray. Chapter 11. Rosie took some time off work and collected Ben from Heathrow. This was preferable to the National Express coach and gave them some time for conversation. Ben was tempted simply to confess all and declare the relationship over, but Lucy had made him promise to view the week as just an adventure. To see it as anything else would be unrealistic. Ben told Rosie a bit about the festival, but she wasn't that interested. She wanted to talk about the wedding. Good old Robert had agreed to fund a reception at Lainston House. Wasn't that exciting? Having mendaciously expressed his delight at the news, Ben asked about the murder case. It had been confirmed that the trial would begin on April the 19th. Rosie had opened a letter from the Crown Prosecution Service that had arrived addressed to Ben, in which he was requested to keep that week free as he would be a witness. Rosie hadn't received an equivalent letter, so she assumed that she wouldn't be called. Robert, on the other hand, had. They decided that it would be safe for Ben to stay over at Taplings Road for one night. They had a couple of drinks, some pleasant chat in anticipation of the wedding preparations, and eventually they slept together. It wasn't the same by any means, but the sensible part of Ben's brain was coming to terms with the feeling that Lucy had been right. It had simply been an adventure, a sideways step, and now he had to adjust back to normal life, or at least as normal as it could be until the trial was over. In the morning, Rosie dropped Ben off at Romsey Station, where he took the train back to Bradford-on-Avon. Over the coming weeks, she forwarded letters to him that contained details of what he should do to prepare for the trial. What it boiled down to was that he would need to present himself at Winchester Crown Court on Monday the 19th of April at 9am. Ben drove over to Winchester on the Sunday, staying at Chilbolton Avenue and being treated to a Sunday roast cooked by Diana. The four of them sat around in the evening, mainly discussing wedding details. Phil Clark, landlord of the narrowboat, had said he would be delighted to be best man. As for the trial, there was little to talk about or prepare. As far as Robert and Ben were concerned, they could do no more or less than tell the truth. Unlike the defendant, they wouldn't have sleepless nights worrying about possible inconsistencies in a fake story. On Monday morning, Ben and Robert walked down Romsey Road together through the rush hour traffic, arriving punctually at 8.55. Robert had had to book some days off school, a matter of some embarrassment. There was a procedure to get through security and identify themselves before entering the austere, wood-panelled witness room. There they sat for a couple of hours, uneasily avoiding the eyes of Dean Harris and Jason Bright, who were also there, both looking extremely uncomfortable in their suits and ties. Among other witnesses, Andy, the landlord of the station, was also present, but nobody talked, other than asking bland questions about the whereabouts of the toilets, or if anyone had changed for the coffee machine. Meanwhile, the trial of Barry Mort was beginning. The nervous members of the jury were shown to their seats. One or two of them were plainly already suffering from claustrophobia, squeezed onto the wooden benches, fiddling with their pencils and anxiously chewing their lips. None of them had asked to be there, and none of them wanted to be there, forced to take days off work which they could ill afford. Each and every one of them, as they parted from their families that morning, had wished, Oh God, let's hope it isn't a murder. The judge, Mr Justice Cecil Pocklington, entered, and then the defendant, Barry Mort, was brought into the dock. The members of the jury were sworn in, hands and voices shaking. 
Mort had scrubbed up, and he, too, was wearing a tight-fitting suit with a dark tie. The clerk of the court read out the murder charge, and Mort was invited to plead. There was no sign of aggression or resentment in his manner, as he looked straight ahead and said, Not guilty. It was now time for the prosecuting counsel, Nigel de Brett, to make his initial submission. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the incident you will hear described as a disturbing case of mindless violence and a salutary lesson to us all on the dangers of alcohol misuse. You will hear how an entirely innocent man was abused and eventually killed by a complete stranger, someone who didn't even know him. Some of you may have heard of the victim, Mr. Corey Zander. Mr. Zander was a musician, a visitor to this country. On October the 14th of last year, he was playing a concert at the station, which is a so-called music venue in Winchester. The simple facts of the case are as follows. Towards the end of Mr. Zander's performance, the defendant, Mr. Mort, entered the hall and for no good reason started shouting abuse at Mr. Zander. Understandably, the victim was distressed by this and did his best to ensure that the defendant desisted from that behaviour. During that process, he may, quite justifiably, have behaved in a threatening manner towards the defendant. In any event, the defendant, who was seen by several witnesses to have been both drunk and aggressive, followed Mr. Zander out of the room, threatening to kill him. This is where you, as the jury, will have to decide, based on the evidence you will hear, whether the defendant proceeded to murder Mr. Zander, because the bare fact is that Mr. Zander was discovered the next day, dead, behind a rubbish container in the car park. He had been hit on the head by a brick, which was subsequently identified as the murder weapon. During this trial, you will no doubt be offered various possible explanations other than the obvious one. Firstly, you may be asked to believe that the defendant, Mr. Mort, was acting in self-defence. We will show that, in fact, Mr. Zander had long since left the room and posed no further threat to him. Or possibly, it will be suggested that he should be convicted of the lesser charge of manslaughter or that the death was some kind of accident. On the contrary, the submission of the prosecution is that Corey Zander was the victim of cold-blooded murder, and that the perpetrator was the defendant, Barry Mort. Both judge and jury were jotting notes as Debrett spoke. After a few procedural comments from the judge, it was time to call the first witness, who was Andy Marriott, the station's landlord. Is your establishment a place where violence often occurs? asked Debrett. Not at all, sir. We have a policy of zero tolerance towards any sort of antisocial behaviour. Am I right in saying that Mr Mort, under the Winchester pub watch scheme, is banned from all city centre pubs? That's correct, but he was already very drunk when he arrived, and also he had shaved his head since the photo we were supplied with was taken. Unfortunately, we only have door security at weekends and this was a Monday. Did you witness the event in the music room? No, sir, I was serving in the front bar. I was aware that Mort and his friends had entered the building, but most of the time they were in the beer garden and not causing any trouble. So what exactly did you see? I saw Barry Mort running back into the music room. I talked to my assistant about what to do, but within a few minutes Corey Zander came charging out of the room and into the car park. Then, a couple of minutes later, Barry Mort comes out, shouting and swearing. What exactly was he saying? Do you want the exact words? Please. He was shouting, Fucking Yank Cunt! 
There was a brief murmur around the court, and some of the jurors shuffled in their seats. What happened then? He disappeared inside, and I don't know what happened there. Thank you, Mr. Marriott. Hilton was on his feet immediately. Mr. Marriott, it is of no interest to the jury whether or not Mr. Mort was subject to a banning order. You must only deal with the facts of the case. So, Mr. Marriott, can you simply tell us, yes or no, please, whether you saw Mr. Mort assaulting Mr. Zander? I didn't see it, no. Thank you. No further questions. The judge looked up. I think this would be a good moment for us to adjourn for lunch, he announced. Ben suggested to Robert that they should walk up Rumsey Road to the St. James's Tavern, which did good sandwiches. As they walked across the cobbled courtyard, the public gallery had cleared, and a group of about ten friends and relatives of Barry Mort were standing in a huddle, lighting up cigarettes. As Ben and Robert passed, they turned and stared. Bright raised his middle finger to them in an act of defiance. Careful what you say, called out Dean Harris. You may regret it. Shelley, Mort's girlfriend, Nan with an extremely large bump, sneered at them and made a wanking gesture with her hand. For a frightening moment, Ben thought they were going to be followed, but no one moved. In the afternoon, two members of the bookworms and one of their friends were cross-examined. None of them were any help at all regarding the events in the room, as they had all been outside throughout Corey's set. The question hinged on what they had seen of events in the car park from the beer garden, where they had all been throughout Corey's set. They all described an identical scenario. Mort had come running up to his two mates, highly agitated, and had told them that they needed to get away fast. Prior to that, they had seen Xander leaving the pub and disappearing into the car park. Had anyone else left the pub? Yes, but nobody had taken any notice of their faces or clothing. Explaining the haste with which Mort and his friends had departed, all three witnesses replied using almost identical words that they would have been scared of Xander. Have you seen him? He was big, and he'd already tried to strangle Baz. It was late in the afternoon, so the judge said he thought it was an appropriate moment to adjourn. We could all do with a cup of tea, mused Ben, as the announcement was made that they could go home. Spending a day in the witness room without actually being called had been a dispiriting experience. Ben had ploughed on through a Graham Hurley novel he was reading on his Kindle, increasingly troubled by the violent events in nearby Portsmouth that it contained, while Robert took the opportunity to catch up with some school admin on his laptop. The usher delivered a message saying that they could both reasonably expect to be called to give evidence the next day. At the roundabout by the junction of Romsey Road and Chilbolton Avenue, they were about to turn right towards Robert's house when they became aware, in the gathering twilight, that a small group of Mort's followers was striding up the road towards them. Uh-oh, thought Ben, this could be trouble. They're planning to intimidate us, said Ben. Why me? pleaded Robert. Because you're a witness, just as I am. What's more, your evidence is going to incriminate Mort even more than mine. They don't know that. They don't know anything, but they look like they mean business. Shall we run for it? They don't know where you live, and they don't know I'm staying with you. Well, I'm going to run home. You do what you like. In the months since the murder, Ben knew that Robert had had security fencing, automatic gates and CCTV installed like many of his neighbours. On a whim, he darted left down Sleepers Hill, leaving Robert to run off to the right towards his home. Instinct had told Ben they'd be after him and not Robert, 
and he seemed to be right. As he sprinted down the steep road, he could hear rapid foot. As he sprinted down the steep road, he could hear rapid footsteps following behind. In his state of panic, Ben was aware of one lucid thought. Surely they weren't stupid enough to get themselves on a charge of intimidating a witness. But perhaps they were, and if that was the case, he was in danger of being seriously hurt. Their best mate was capable of murder, for goodness sake, so he banished the fleeting thought that he had had of stopping and turning to have a conversation with the gang. Turning left at the bottom of the hill, he leapt over a fence into the grounds of some student residences and hid behind a hedge, desperately trying to curb the loud, gasping breaths brought on by terror and the unaccustomed physical activity. His gamble paid off. He'd hoped that they would assume that he'd carry straight on towards St. Cross Road. He heard the footsteps of five people running on towards the main road. Where's the cunt gone? Dunno, down here, maybe? It was twenty minutes before Ben dared to move a muscle. Maybe they weren't daft after all, and were silently waiting for him to emerge. Eventually, he trusted that he was safe for the time being. It was dark, so he couldn't be sure. With his heart beating like a percussion orchestra, Ben tried to weigh up the options. He couldn't go to his flat, that was clear. Robert wouldn't thank him for leading them to his house, which they'd so far not targeted. With a desire to get right out of town now a top priority, Ben took out his iPhone and made an online booking for the travel lodge on the A34 at Sutton Scotney, then called a taxi and arranged to be taken there. Describing exactly where he was to a baffled switchboard lady, he figured he could probably leap into a taxi unscathed even if the gang was still around. They weren't, and Ben was able to spend a desolate evening watching TV in his box-like hotel room, dining on a fry-up in The Little Chef. He phoned Robert, who said that he hadn't been followed as far as he knew, thank goodness. Ben considered the idea of phoning the police and telling them what had happened, but of course the gang would deny it, and where was the evidence? He wondered what their motive had been anyway, eventually deciding it was probably just an unfocused desire for retribution on someone they blamed for their friend's predicament. In the morning, Ben was first in the witness box. In one sense, he was terrified, because public speaking wasn't his forte. He'd seen enough courtroom dramas to know that he'd be in for a grilling, and that the defence lawyer would try to make him look foolish and unreliable. On the other hand, he knew that all he could do would be to tell the truth, and nothing could change that. His voice trembled, his breathing became irregular, he felt dizzy, and his hands sweated so much he feared he would drop the Bible but he had to go through with it somehow. For the prosecution, Nigel de Brett led Ben through a description of the evening's events, focusing on certain specific details. When Mr Mort first entered the room, why did you not prevent him from coming in? Well, it happened so fast and I wasn't expecting it. Everyone else just paid or showed a ticket, but he simply pushed his way in. How was he acting? He was drunk, and I was very intimidated by his behaviour. There were no security personnel I could have called on. I could have made a big thing out of it, but I didn't want to spoil the evening for everyone. Did he say why he was there? Yes, he said his cousin was in the support band. That was one good thing, because I assumed he'd leave when they finished. And did he leave? Did he come back again later? Yes, he did while the main act was playing. That was a complete surprise. I wasn't even bothering to watch the door because I was listening to the music. I knew there'd been a bit of pushing and shoving between him and Corey in the front bar, so maybe that was the reason. So what happened when he re-entered? 
the defendant started shouting abuse at Mr Zander. Eventually, Corey got fed up with it and confronted Mr Mort. Ben stole a glance at Mort, impassive in the dock. Can you describe what happened next? Well, there was a struggle. Corey had Mort up against the wall. For a moment, no one intervened because it was all such a shock. How did Mort react? He tried to struggle, but Mr Zander was too strong for him. He was very angry at Mr Mort's behaviour and just went for him. But after a moment, he just let him drop and stormed out. Ben wasn't looking at Mort now, aware that the next few questions would require him to make incriminating statements. So when Zander left the room, what happened? We tried to make sure Mr Mort was OK, and he recovered within a couple of minutes. Then he left the room too, looking for Corey. Now think carefully, please, Mr Walker. What were Mort's precise words as he left? He said, I'm going to fucking kill him. There was a brief ripple of whispering round the court. Some members of the jury looked at each other and made notes. Debrett turned back to Ben. Am I right, Mr Walker, that you saw nothing of any events that then occurred outside? That's correct. Why didn't you go outside yourself? Well, I was relieved that Mort had gone and I wanted to clear up. I did wonder whether it might kick off outside, but I certainly didn't want to get involved. So, in summary, you have told us that Xander left the room and Mort followed him. Yes, sir, that is correct. Thank you, Mr Walker. Damien Hilton, the defence lawyer, could hardly wait to get stuck in. Mr Walker, let's assume that your description was accurate. When you heard Mr Mort say, uh, I'm going to fucking kill him, do you seriously expect the jury to believe he was announcing to a room full of people that he was about to commit a murder? I believe that was in his mind, yes, he was out of control of what he was saying. Uh, precisely. Out of control and drunk, as you assert. Yes, I know drunk people sometimes say things they don't mean, but in this case, as I have said, Mort was very aggressive. Uh, in this court, we are only concerned with the facts, and not what you may or may not have believed at the time. Let's ask you something else. You are quite clear that there was a physical fight between Xander and Mort in that room, and that Xander was the aggressor. Yes. So the DNA and fingerprints could both have come from the incident in the room, and not from some alleged meeting later in the car park. It was not a question, and Ben hesitated. He knew that this was the point at which Hilton would sense a lack of certainty in him and go on the attack. All I can say is that I did not see what happened in the car park. He took a deep breath. But what I did see was this. Xander left the room and Mort followed him, making threatening remarks. Nobody can know exactly what happened after that because no one saw it. Precisely, said Hilton. I have no further questions. Next into the witness box was the pathologist, Dr Patel. The defence clearly wanted to put her on the spot about whether the wound could have been inflicted accidentally. We know that the car park was a depository for greasy fast food containers. It is quite feasible that Mr Zander might have slipped, is it not? Yes. So, if Mr Zander had slipped and fallen backwards, hitting his head on the brick, would that be consistent with the wound on the back of his head? It's not out of the question. Mr. Debrett for the prosecution now rose to his feet. What, in your expert opinion, is the most probable cause of this wound? The most likely cause is being hit on the head with the brick. She nodded towards the weapon, wrapped in see-through polythene. But if the victim 
as is being suggested by the defence, had uh, slipped, Debrett smiled. It would also have been possible for the wound to be inflicted in that way. It is feasible, but in my opinion unlikely. Xander was a large man, and if his head had hit the brick with a force as he fell, it could have had a similar effect. In my opinion, it would be more likely that he had been pushed backwards, thus generating the force necessary to inflict the wound. So, in effect, you are saying that Mr. Xander was either hit on the head with a brick or forcibly pushed over onto it. Yes. Thank you, Dr. Patel. The final witness for the day was the Grams fan, whose name turned out to be Richard Carswell. He'd been chosen out of several possible other audience members because he told the police that he'd be keen to give evidence. I saw the incident clearly because Corey nearly tripped over my wife's leg as he left the stage. I turned round and watched as he headed straight for the guy who was shouting. He grabbed him by the neck, but he dropped him almost immediately. Then he walked out, and shortly afterwards Mort followed. What were the defendant's words as he left the room in pursuit of Mr. Zander? He said he was going to kill him. Again, whispers reverberated round the room. Counsel for the defence, Mr. Hilton, wanted to pursue this, but Carswell was having none of it. Don't we all often say things in the heat of the moment that we don't mean? Yes, we do, but in this case I am convinced that he meant it. Despite being repeatedly requested to stick to the facts, Carswell, Corey's greatest fan, was determined to express his opinion. The judge looked up over his half-moon glasses. I think this would be an opportune moment to adjourn proceedings for the day. The jury was getting used to this by now. They fervently hoped that it would only be one more day's evidence, as, to most of them, it was already an open and shut case, and all they wanted to do was go home. Ben had planned his exit carefully. At lunchtime, he'd stayed in the witness room and eaten a sandwich purchased earlier from Sutton Scotney Services. Now, he jogged down to where he'd just phoned for a taxi to pick him up by the Elizabeth Frink horse statue in Upper High Street. The gaggle, who he'd suspected of following him the previous day, were just lighting up their cigarettes in the drizzle by the time Ben was gone. He was beginning to feel a lot like Alan Partridge as he settled down for his second night in the travel lodge. Xander and Oliver's other books are also available in print and Kindle editions. For more information, head to olivergray.com. This audiobook was a DC 10 Tonight production.